everyone and welcome to our podcast interruptions for those of you who are listening for the very first time we call our podcast interruptions because we believe that there's a magical space between an incident or something occurring and our reaction to that incident or occurrence we call that space that space in between the occurrence and the response the interruptions We, the Workplace Learning and Professional Development team, believe that if you have the appropriate tools to engage positively during that interruption, that's when the magic can happen and we yield the positive results that we all want. So in today's episode, it is a part of our Love GT series, Living Our Values Every Day, Love GT. Isn't that cute? We are taking a deeper look into each of our institute values, of which there are nine, Um, But I'm super excited to chat with a few of our community members today, and our focus is going to be on our value, We Champion Innovation. So please welcome our two esteemed guests. One is John Avery, and the other is Paul Todd. So John, can you tell us about yourself? Introduce yourself to our listeners. Um, Sure. I'm a Georgia native, uh, Georgia Tech alum, double E from the mid-80s, four-time entrepreneur. I've had two exits, two failures. Uh, formerly with Panasonic Automotive, used to run their innovation center for automotive, actually on the tech campus, and then took on this role as a director for ATC about uh, four, just over four years ago now. Awesome. Thank you. I can't wait to hear about all of this. All right. Um, Paul, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, you should have let me go first, but <laughs> can't match John. But so also a Georgia native, uh, native of Atlanta and uh, Georgia Tech grad in what was then called industrial management back in olden times, uh, class of 86 as well. That's now the business administration degree. And I've been with Georgia Tech for now 22 years. And where I work is the uh, Georgia Manufacturing Extension Partnership, which is an economic development and outreach agency where we assist manufacturers around the state in helping them get better at whatever it is they do. And I lead a team of uh, 10 professionals who work in that field uh, around the state. Awesome. Thank you so much. Such interesting backgrounds. So before we dig in, have either of you ever played the game One Gotta Go? Have you ever heard of this? Don't know that one. Don't know that one? All right. Well, you're going to learn today. (laughs) I'm a little nervous now. I think one of us (laughs) is not going to be here, John. (laughs) Not like that. (laughs) So I'm going to tell you four different things. They'll be random. And you have to choose which one of those four has to go. So I'll start, since it's th- we are just off the heels of Thanksgiving, I'll start with an easy one. So the four things are apple pie, pecan pie, sweet potato pie, or pumpkin pie. John, which one? I like them all, but I think between those four, I would, I would pass on the pumpkin pie and go for the other three. I concur. Is that allowed? Yes, that is allowed. Okay. All right. So you guys are getting rid of pumpkin pie. <laughs> Interesting. That's Only smart. if the other three were on the table, I'll say it that way. Yes, gotcha. Right. <laughs> I would get rid of pumpkin pie too. All right. One more. The iPhone, streaming platforms, the internet, or hot showers. <laughs> Boy, that's harsh. Well, for me, it's a little easier because I'm an Android user. So uh, 
uh, given up, if I had to give up an iPhone, I'd keep the other three because yeah. I don't miss the iPhone because I don't have one. <laughs> oh, that was see, that was easy. I was gonna I was gonna default to streaming platforms, which is a terrible choice. But I don't have an iPhone either, so I'm gonna steal John's answer again. Yeah, how are you, you both are Android users? <laughs> yes. Why am I talking to you? What is going on? Let's wrap it up. <laughs> So maybe both of us have to go. <laughs> I know. See you later, alligator. No. Okay. That was fun. Android users. That, that puts y'all in a different light. All right. So the value that we're talking about today is we champion innovation. The way that um, the Institute describes it is we inspire, empower, and provide the resources and environments for innovative ideas and solutions to flourish. We welcome new concepts and approaches that lead to creative ideas and solutions. So when you hear that, Paul, when you hear the definition of we champion innovation, what does that make you think about? Well, that is what I do on a daily basis. I don't think that's what somebody had in mind when they, when they wrote that, but I think it's pretty broad. You can apply that to climate change or national defense or, you know, all sorts of really huge uh, issues. But I think for our internal audience as, as Georgia Tech team members, it's about finding and fixing broken processes or inefficient processes. Now, that's, that's what I do with external client companies on a weekly basis, but that's my bias coming out. But I'm thinking of the, the micro version of that idea in terms of things that don't work as well as we hope they would, and let's try to make those better. Thoughts about that, John? Yeah, it's it's interesting. I've got two contexts. Uh, one is the uh, role I have now at ATDC. We help founders create companies, so they're trying to make something new in the world, uh, which is a big innovation process. Mm -hmm. uh, but we're also trying to help them scale. Formerly, when I was at Panasonic Automotive, when the innovation center there, this topic come, came up a lot. And the hard part about it is that, uh, in a way, I almost feel like innovation is the opposite of efficiency. It's a lot of what you do in corporate life is about reducing unknowns and producing repeatability uh, and getting things that are more uh, that are more predictable and less uh, abstract. That's sort of the, the role of management and structure in companies. And even for startups, as they get real, the bigger they get, the more structure they need which makes, it's like the opposite of innovation in a way uh, that does that. So I, I guess when I hear this, my first thought is that balance between uh, scale and structure that you need for scale and innovation, which you kind of need to keep things new and fresh and looking for the better ideas. And uh, we talk about it in terms of a explore versus exploit balance. Uh, you can't be all explore all the time because you don't ever make any headway. And you can't be all exploit all the time because you never make any changes to get things better. And so there's a dial you have to turn to sort of keep the innovation alive, but in control in a way that your organization can survive in the process of the innovation occurring. And uh, that's not an easy balance to keep. It's something that's never stable. It's always taking a nudge one way or the other to keep things the right way. Uh, and generally, the people that end up in higher levels of management in a company are the people who don't like that innovation side. They like the structure side. That's how they ended up growing up the organization more quickly. And so typically that means that it's more difficult for those people to be the ones who are championing that innovation because they got to where they are because they were the people who made things more stable uh, in general. That's why they were rewarded in that organization. 
And so that's how you end up with these organizations where innovation is having a harder and harder place to survive. And uh, anyway, that's a, it's a complex, dynamic topic that's, uh, there's a lot of, a uh, lot going on there. Yeah. I'm yeah. interested. Yeah. Go ahead, Paul. John's great answer reminded me of a quote I heard from a Stanford professor, and he said, leadership requires plumbing as well as poetry. And what he meant was another way of saying what John was referring to is the poetry is what we think of inspiration. We're going to do great things. We're going to solve the great problems of the world. And great. We have to have that from an effective leader. We also have to have somewhere in that chain, the plumbing's got to work. The the basic processes have to work. People have to get paid. Uh, you know, the lease has to be signed, all, all those mundane things that are not related to poetry, but they still have to get done or we're not going to get very far. So that that balance that John speaks of is really critical. Yeah. This idea of plumbing versus poetry is interesting to me. So how would you all advise someone who is leading a team? And let's just say that team is responsible for creating something new in the world, as John had mentioned, right? What are the things that a leader should be doing, thinking about, you know, creating something new in the world, the the plumbing part aside, like what do we do to sort of infuse that idea of creating something new? And does innovation always have to mean new? I would say new or refined. It doesn't have to be blue sky. Come back to, to the bias that I have, it's what I do is usually tweaking or modifying or improving an existing process, whereas uh, a lot of John's companies really are, they're, they're making things out of whole cloth. I mean, they're, they're pulling things out of the air that didn't exist yesterday. But I think uh, from my point of view, first, the, the leader has to be honest with him or herself and say, if, if you're better at, po- at poetry and terrible at plumbing, you better have somebody on your team who can handle the other. There has to be some balance there, and I'm, I'm sure that's a common conversation with entrepreneurs. We see that a lot in, in business owners who are fantastic at sales or they're fantastic at operations and, and usually not both. If they can't do it all, then they have to have somebody else who can uh, help that process. But understanding, we usually start with how does the thing work today? What problem are we trying to solve? What is the issue that we're addressing? Have a clear understanding of that before you go forward, because that's a good grounding in my mind of, of what we're trying to accomplish and why. And that focuses everybody's attention on if there is a great, wonderful idea out there, what is that idea going to accomplish? And so that's one way of looking at that for me. I think from my perspective that I love that Georgia Tech has this as a sort of a named category of focus. Uh, it's really to me, it has to do with that where that dial is set. As a leader, uh, I think the key there is that you've been conscious, you've been intentional about how much of your bandwidth, how many of your resources, how much of your budget, how many of your people you're going to allocate to this explore side of the house versus exploit. And as a leader, being careful about what parts of the organization could really be harmed by that innovation if it's handled poorly. Uh, there's certain parts of the organization, like the skeletal structure, that you know you really can't allow haphazard changes because the whole thing can collapse. And so part of the leadership mode is to figure out the size of the sandbox for this explore to occur, uh, this, this activity for these people can occur in a safe place where they can, you know, try things out because they're going to fail and that's okay. And as a leader, you have just carved out in your mind that that's okay for that group doing that kind of work for this amount of resources, hopefully with an idea that they can make something happen better, but not always. Um, and that's part of the explore part of the equation because you don't know the outcome. But eventually, the goal is to connect those things that work to that exploit part. 
And so that you can make your uh, company more efficient, like Paul talks about, you know, the goal is to make things work better at the end of the day to go further than you could have previously. And you will hopefully find ways to do that you wouldn't have thought of before uh, by exercising these, these, this kind of thinking. So as a leader, I think that the summary is the balance is having to consciously choose where you have that knob set and allocating the specific amount of resources and time and people uh, to do that kind of work and be sort of um, intentional about where you do those connections where that when the right time is and protecting the organization in the meantime. I think when I came into innovation work at Panasonic, I was a little naive in thinking that innovation all the time everywhere was sort of uh, the mode and uh, the, the goal of tr we were trying to get to. And I've kind of learned, you know, when you've got a global network of manufacturing supply chain sort of requirements, there is a lot of parts of that organization that are fairly fragile. And uh, you have to be really careful about how you treat them, in which case you, you, you can't take a lot of risks. And there's other parts of the organization where you can, and you leverage those, and you try to be careful about where you bring those new things in. And I have a lot better, more respect for those parts of the organization that do have to have very uh, strong guardrails against uh, change, because those are necessary for survival at scale. Anything at scale has that requirement. And uh, I think a, a leader understanding both of those equations and what, when you can apply what resources to which side of the house and making those those choices intentionally is really a, one of the keys. I think at Georgia Tech, the idea that we're trying to convey by this is that we're, as an organization, we've got the dial pretty far turned <laughs> on the explore, the explore side. You know, we're okay trying new sorts of teaching, new types of research. We don't always know the answers, but that's why the organization exists in the first place. And so this is a place where you can do those things more safely because uh, we don't have those rigid parts that are so uh, fragile in a big production type company. Mm -hmm. And so we can take those chances and we can we can explore those things more dynamically than you could in other places. And I think thinking about that intentionally is a good thing to do. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I think also it depends on where, you know, you sit in the organization, because I think some people would say, you know, I don't know that I feel safe enough to try something and it not work out. So the question in that is sort of what can we do in those spaces where people maybe don't feel as safe um, to fail, right? How do we make it safe for folks to to try things and, and potentially and not work out? Yeah, we've been having that conversation uh, with an internal group on campus that I'm working with, which is not what we normally do, but uh, we're trying to apply some of the same things we do with manufacturing companies to campus processes our normal way of thinking is, oh, this process doesn't work well or it's inefficient or it's frustrating. We're going to work together and come up with a new way and test it and fix it. Great. And with this group, we weren't getting a lot of buy-in. They, they weren't necessarily resistant, but they were very reluctant. And there just wasn't a lot of enthusiasm. And one of my colleagues who has been here for a fairly short time, she said, Paul, you have to understand most of the people who work at Georgia Tech do not share that mentality of let's break this process down and fix it and make it better. And she said, they're not, it's not that they're negative or hardheaded, but she said, we all work for a government institution. We work for a very big, complex organization. And for that person who is not in a, a position of authority or leadership, it's a very scary thing to say, oh, we're going to change this process. You know, we're all drilled about USG policy and ethics training and cybersecurity, all these other things that we know we the guardrail, so to speak. And so the easiest, safest thing to do 
sometimes is just deal with the dysfunction and get over it or complain about it. And so that was a real lesson for me because while I've worked for tech for a long time, I've not worked on campus ever. I work in Macon and, and around the state. So that was an eye opener for me, but it makes a lot of sense because we are bound by a lot of rules. And particularly those people who are buried in the organization who don't have a position of a lot of authority, that is something that we have to be cognizant of. And I think having that first conversation to say, all right, we're going to, within the boundaries of the things that we can change, we're going to experiment. And it is okay to fail, provided that, to John's point, we're not in a regulatory environment or an ethics boundary or something else that's going to get us uh, as one of ethics officer once told us, she said, I'm not going to jail with you or for you. And so we're going to we're going to comply with all those rules. But within the boundaries of that, there are lots of things that we can do that are not regulated and are not bound by policy. Let's just do some common sense things at a small scale to begin to foster that mindset of I see a problem. Let's figure out together what we can do to make it go away. Yeah, I was this this made me think about an assignment. My daughter, she is 11 years old and at the time she was in the 4th grade and she had to do a um project and it was about the oopses that turned into like these magical um useful tools that we all have like the microwave and somebody was it was like an accident or the post-it note, it was like a mess up and it turned into something that was really interesting and so we have this thing on our team where we talk about, I as the leader kind of say, I'm probably more of the plumber part. My brain immediately goes to the like, how can we do this kind of thing? But just the simple act of me saying wow to an idea versus how to the idea sort of switches my brain off and helps us to further iterate and have a discussion that probably would have shut down had we started going down this path of how. But my question and thought is how long, and I don't know if there's a magic formula to it. John kind of talked about creating these guardrails and spaces for us to innovate. But how long do we allow that to happen before we switch to this balance that we know we have to have in order for us to be successful? I think that's the that's that uh, the knob I'm talking about turning. You have to pick a time. You have to I'll, you have to decide as a leader what that's going to be. And I don't think there's a magic right answer. Uh, I say as much time as possible before it puts the organization at risk <laughs> uh, is one way to look at it. And and Paul, I, I really love what you said about how um, as an organization on the front end, I think Georgia Tech has a very uh, you know the the research that goes on here is very creative, and we're looking for answers that that don't exist today, that kind of thinking. But as an institution, it's a very old and very highly sort of uh, structured framework. And in that framework, it is difficult to actually think about how do you innovate in that side of the house, the back side of the house, to make the front side of the house more free to do the work that they need to do. And um, I just feel and like that's a, that's a hard thing to get right. And uh, I feel like the I'll say it this way. If the organization, if the leadership doesn't have a, a stated goal to do that, it won't ever happen. Um, the fact that it has it stated as a goal is at least an op opportunity for that to occur, because if someone in the organization is leaning in that direction, they have that to hang on to. That's a stated goal of the organization. So I'm not an anybody. You don't have to kick up the antibodies. I'm not a foreign 
entity here. I'm part of the organization and I've been recognized as that because it's stated right there at the top level goal that this is important for us. Otherwise, the uh, the antibodies kick in and they kill it. It doesn't mean that it will happen when that when you have that stated, but if it's not stated, it won't happen. So I just feel like it's a good thing to me to see that it's in there. And as you know, as we work through the organization, whatever layers we're in, uh, to try to find out the thing that we can do to help bring that forward, that's that's all we can do, really. Yeah, I think it's uh, we talked about the the definition, and it's easy to see. Well, if you're in a prominent research lab, great, that's innovation. Everybody can see that. But we need to broaden the innovation definition to include most of the 8,000 people who work at Georgia Tech are in the backside. They're in the back of the house. They're in the they're behind the scenes of that eminent researcher who's doing wonderful things. And so I would challenge people at every level to look at that definition and say, oh, well, I'm not in a research lab or I'm, I'm not that person. Well, what does innovation mean in student housing? What does it mean in landscaping. I mean, we literally have plumbers, at George, lots of plumbers at Georgia Tech. What does it mean for them to be innovative in what they do in procurement and accounting and, and everything else? The definition is very broad and, and should and has to include all those types of activities in addition to the more glamorous ones of solving the climate crisis or something like that. But yeah, if it's going to become part of the DNA of the organization, it has to exist at all of those levels, not just at the very top. So I have another question for you all. And I don't know if you've ever experienced this or not, but we hire lots of new people into the organization. And as you stated, we are a part of a sort of a, a fully developed <laughs> machine, right? That has its own way of doing things. What advice would you provide to someone coming into an organization new? Because sometimes when you are in it, right, it doesn't seem dysfunctional or whatever the right word would be, right? Um, but when you are new and you come in with eyes wide open and you see things that you think should change, right? But you come up against someone who's like, well, we've always done it this way or this process works, you know, not open to that innovation. What advice would you give to someone in approaching a situation such that they can get their voices heard? Can we crack that one first, John? Go for it, Paul. I will say that the thing that I learned a few years ago and I've kept with me is that a great, a new person is a great test of your processes. Because what that means is the new person comes in and says, Oh, how does this work? And the old timers go, Well, we it just, you know, you know how it works. We just do this thing. Like, no, I, I don't know how it works. That's why I'm asking you. There's nothing written down. Uh, I looked at the video, which turns out to be 12 years old and doesn't do me any good because all the processes have changed. So that's when you begin to realize how fragile some of your processes are and, and they they just they're not helpful and not working. And that new person will bring those to the surface. And so what does that new person need to do? Uh, I would say speak up and speak up with respect, recognizing that the current process was probably designed and executed by the people you're working with. And just be aware that your questions, hey, why does it work this way, may sound like an attack to that team or that person. You don't mean it that way. You're just asking the obvious question, hey, I noticed this doesn't work very well. What else could we do? Uh, the person you're talking to may have developed that back in 1987, and, and that's, that's why we've always done it that way. So speak up, speak with respect and with the aim to improve the process, not to blame the person whoever designed or executed or oversees that process is probably suffering along with you, but has just gotten used to it by now. And so 
help bring that problem to the surface, but try to do it in a diplomatic way that gets people on your side to let's make it easier for it, for ourselves, not because I don't like it, but because I want it to be better for us. Yeah, I agree completely with that. To me, the, the first impression of your new people is probably the most important real feedback that you can ever get. You quickly accommodate whatever your environment is and you don't notice it anymore. Your environment like water for a fish, you know, you don't think about it, it's just all, all the way around you. And when you come in from outside, your first impressions are the only real new source of truth about what's different or wrong or could be better that you ever get. There are reasons that things are the way they are in organizations. And if you speak too quickly in denouncing what you've seen without understanding what's going on, it's not going to result in a change that's a positive change. So I think it's a balance of not losing that first impression, logging it, remembering it, writing it down, and then studying the system that you're in about how it is, how did it get to be the way it is, who's in charge of that, where did that come from? And then once you've got some credibility with the organization, come back to those first impressions, and that's where you can really make some change happen. And I think it's incumbent on the leaders to ask those questions and, yeah, and that's right. in, in good faith to say, hey, you, you've been here a month or, a, or six months or whatever the time frame is. What are you seeing? What what are you seeing that we're not? And and being intentional and listening genuinely to that because you might get your feelings hurt, but uh, it is important to hear. Yeah, absolutely. So we've talked a lot in the little bit of time that we have been engaging in a dialogue, there are a couple of things that I want to recap. I think the first one is we are ahead of the game in that we have fully stated that we champion innovation. So step one is that it is an articulated value of our institute so that we know that we have the support of the institute to act in this manner. I think the other thing that we sort of talked about was this idea, like there's a balance, right? Uh, Paul talked about the plumber versus the poet and like, how do you make that balance in a way that that works out? I think that another thing that we talked about was decide on a framework, right? Pick a time for innovation, make space for it, um, knowing that some things are going to work out and some things are not and make space for it. And then as we think about um, new folks coming in or people with ideas or that are different from what we've done historically is First, study the system, like take a minute, take a beat, learn as much as you can, build some credibility, and then speak up with respect. So those are some tools, some practical tools that people can can take away from this. I want to um, spend our last little bit of time talking about some behaviors and actions that have been articulated as a result of the value we champion innovation. And the first one says that the val a value behavior of a person championing, championing innovation is that they provide thoughtful feedback to others when ideas are not adopted. When you hear that behavior, sort of any tangible examples or stories or thoughts come to mind for you on those? That's a, one that we deal with a, a lot, actually, at ATDC. We've got a, it's just, we're a startup incubator, essentially. We help founders create companies all across Georgia. And uh, we've got a uh, an open segment of our portfolio that's uh, it's called the Educate Group. Anyone can sign up. There's no gator filter. They can come and take classes and learn how to be an entrepreneur. But then we have a portfolio that's by invitation. And uh, there's a pitch event you come to, and you and it's to our staff. And our staff does a deliberation and figures out if it's a good fit for our portfolio uh, to move them into the portfolio. We assign a coach at that point. Like that is a dedicated resource at ATDC for up to four or five years that we're committing to help that organization. We can't do that with every organization that comes in. 
So we've got a sort of limited resource model problem that we're trying to allocate to the best possible companies that we can bring the most value to. And it's constantly a case that somebody wants into the organization and uh, we don't think it's a good fit and for various reasons. And trying to become more transparent about our thought processes there and our reasons for the decisions that we're making uh, has been the primary goal I've tried to, to work on as I've been here to make those uh, that feedback better. And it needs to be concrete and real and tangible and understandable and transparent and data-based. It's sort of, you know, all the things that uh, our, our decision-making should be open like that. Everything that we do should be uh, something that everyone understands. You may disagree with the reasons, but you at least understand the reasons. Uh, and that's something that we fight a lot. And that kind of feedback, as you can imagine, is always uncomfortable. None of us likes to give that kind of feedback to a founder who's really committed to their goal and uh, believes in their, you know, their mission. But for whatever reason, it may not be a good fit for HEDC. For example, we focus on high-tech, high-growth potential companies only, not service businesses or lifestyle businesses. That's just who our services are made for. And if that's the kind of company that comes in um, and it's a lifestyle business or something that's not technology-based, it's not a good fit for the resources we have. Um, but in the past, we've not been really specific about what it is that was the, the not a good fit and why that was something that uh, we needed to to move away from. And it's trying to get better at that. And that is an essential element to help in an organization like HTDC to be able to be that kind of transparent, open feedback. And I think that generally applies in life uh, in an organization that when something can't be adopted or something is not a good fit, that there's an open dialogue, even when it's uncomfortable uh, that you can at least understand the reasons, even if you don't agree with the rationale, you understand the reasoning. Uh, and that's something that never, it, it practically never occurs in most organizations. Something would, it, uncom uncomfortable conversations rarely occur. And uh, they're hard because a lot of times emotions get kicked in and uh, there's differences of opinion about the way to look at the same situation. All that comes into it. We're all human. We're, we make mistakes. Sometimes we incorrectly assess the situation. Uh, sometimes there's things that come into the decision-making that shouldn't. And we have to be aware of that and make sure that we're open with ourselves about the fact that that was a decision criteria that we shouldn't have adopted or we shouldn't have considered in our thinking. And in, 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 it was a mistake for us to do that and have that kind of transparency with our own decisions. So that's what I think about when I hear you mention that. That's what goes immediately to my mind because that is never an easy thing to do. Let me give you a similar but add-on to that one, Paul. It says, create an atmosphere that rewards vulnerability and innovative ideas and promotes constructive feedback free of reprisal or fear of failure. Yeah, that, that makes me think of a light bulb moment for me many years ago in my previous employer. Uh, we were in a very good team event and we were talking about making some changes to this manufacturing process. Had a very good consultant working with us. And the plant manager who was in the room with us uh, had an idea about how to resolve some issue. And everybody in the room, that's great. And there was a guy in the back of the room who you normally worked on the second shift and didn't sit in on meetings like this very often. He quietly leaned over to the person next to him and said, that's not going to work. And I heard him and I kind of put him on the spot. I said, wait a minute, I, you know, I think uh, Joe has something to say. And so he spoke up and, and when he expressed his uh, view, everybody, including the plant manager who came up with the idea said, oh, he's absolutely right. That's never going to work. And so that was a, the lesson for me was if you let that person not speak up or if you if you don't 
encourage him or her to to share that, you're going to miss a lot. Uh, and it was it was such a, a good moment for me. I don't think the guy appreciated me putting him on the spot like that, but it really helped because we all said, okay, well, he's exactly right. We got to come up with some other way to do that. And so I think it's really critical, even if if that idea had, you know, if he had been incorrect about that, you really have to be respectful of that person to say, if your idea is good and valid, great, we're all going to celebrate. If it's not something that we can do or it's, it's uh, you know, not going to work or we can't figure out how to make it work, you have to go back to the person and tell them that clearly and help them be part of the conversation to say why we're not able to do this thing and to say thank you. That was a really value your, your input, but do that in a genuine way because that's, even as I said that, I worked for somebody who he would close down the conversation with the phrase, I appreciate your input. We all figured out eventually that was his way of saying, I'm done with this conversation. So I, when I say that, I, you got to be genuine when you say thank you for your input. Your input. But, uh, help people understand that everybody in the organization has the capacity to be innovative, to improve, to find new and better ways. Even the person who started yesterday, he or she didn't walk in from birth, right? They have some life experience or some experience at a previous organization. They've been around and they have the benefit of fresh eyes as well. So I, I think just being respectful of the person who has input of any kind, even if you think, well, this is not, this is not going to work. Please don't say it quite like that. But there's a really powerful question that I learned a few years ago. When somebody has an idea or suggestion that even if you hate it or you just don't see how it's practical, one way to proceed is to say, how would we test that idea? You think, ah, oh, we all totally ought to do this thing. Sometimes what they're saying is somebody else ought to totally do this thing. And what you say with that question is, tell me how you see that playing out, right? I, I'm not saying no. I'm not even saying yes, but tell me how, what's your next step? What, what's the experiment that will show the rest of us the value of that idea? And if you can do that, you're, you're involving them in the solution, first of all. And one of you is going to be proven right. What the idea you thought was nuts is either going to be proven to be nuts or, oh, actually, that would work and we should be doing that. But it advances the conversation without presenting it on a platter to say, may I please do this thing? Yes or no. I don't know. How would we test that? How would we, how would we take a safe, small step to say, yeah, this thing totally works. We should go forward with it. So this idea, we always celebrate success. Um, would you be willing to tell us a story about one of your failures? Well, there was a startup. Uh, so I had a startup in Norcross that was acquired uh, by Amazon. We moved to Seattle and went out there, worked there for a while. Then we, I, I left there to do another startup. And it was at the time around 2000. And I don't know if anybody remembers, but that was not a particularly good time to try to do a startup. And it was in a market where uh, the customer base was uh, very affluent uh, people that were buying toys, them to play with. And obviously that combination especially didn't work. And uh, so I was in it because I, I was enjoying the environment and I, it was a fun thing to work on. Um, and uh, But I didn't really pay attention to the environment, the ecosystem that was in play at that time. And uh, so there was just no moving anything forward. There was zero traction. And so I left a great opportunity at a great company at that time. Imagine if I'd stayed at Amazon from 1999 till now, where I would be differently. And uh, because I just wasn't paying attention to the environment where I was in, my eyes weren't open to the real situation of the environment that was prevalent at that time. And uh, if I had done more customer discovery and sort of figured out, you know, whether these customers were really there, really just ready to spend money, uh, I would have made a much smarter choice. So a lot of my learning comes from 
doing things wrong. <laughs> they say an expert is just someone who's made more mistakes than anyone else. Uh, just try not to make the same one twice. And uh, I'm learning lately that it's actually better if you can just learn off of other people's mistakes <laughs> rather than your own. Uh, and that just means paying attention more and listening more and learning more and, and uh, having a wider network that you can you know, engage with and be transparent with and learn from. And, you know, those mistakes that other people make are just as valuable to you if you can understand the reasons for them. Uh, that's like you made it, but you don't have to pay the cost for it. So um, I think there's just so much value in transparency and open networks. And we all live just a single thread of a life. And we only have our personal experience that we can draw on as an individual. But if you've got a wide network and you're open with that network and you're transparent with that network, you have the benefit of that combined threads of life that you can benefit from in powerful ways. So that was, in my case, uh, one of the biggest regrets I have is not doing my homework before I jumped out. Uh, and I, I, if I could go back in any point in my life, that's the point I would go back to. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think one of the things that, you know, people shy away from is sharing those failures. And if we don't share them, then we don't have an opportunity to learn from the folks that have done it so that we don't have to repeat it, just like John mm -hmm. was saying. This idea of championing innovation, I love the fact that I feel free as an employee of Georgia Tech to try new things. I feel free to be vulnerable. I feel free to say, wow. And then I'll take pause and say, what would your next step be? Um, those are some valuable pieces that we've been able to learn today. And so as we close, as we often do, whenever there's a stimulus, right, there's something that happens. There's a new employee. There's a new idea. There's a new innovation. There's a period between how you respond or what you say as a result of this new idea and what you do in the middle in the meantime. For leaders, what I'm hearing us say is that we want to create some boundaries so that people can explore and can expand their thought process and learn from each other. So as we close out the podcast, I want to give Paul, I'll give you, throw it to you first, any final things that you would like to say to anyone who is noodling on this idea of championing innovation, um, any final words around that? Uh, I'll steal one from, it's a Toyotaism that I use a lot. And it's uh, when there's an issue, a problem, or a difficulty, the shorthand version is go see, ask why, show respect. So that means go to where that thing is happening, go to where the marketplace is or the office or the lab or wherever the thing is happening, ask good questions and listen attentively. That's part of the respect, showing respect. And then challenge the person that you're talking to or the team you're talking to. What do they think we should do differently? Uh, we tend sometimes to interpret leadership as the person with all the answers. And that's, that's a, if that was ever true, that's, that's not a very effective <laughs> definition of leadership. So the, the wisdom of the group is always better than the wisdom of one person. So challenging the people in the organization to grow and get better through their own innovation, I think is really powerful. Awesome. Thank you so much for that, Paul. John, any final words? I think for me, this, the, the, the inspirational thing that I like to remind myself of is that in every given day, there's literally nothing that you engage with that has always been there. No process, no device, no system. Everything you engage with every day is thought up by a human being somewhere in the past who had whatever it took to bring that thing forward into the world. 
And you are that you are one of those people. Like we are one of those people. And so nothing you engage with today has to always be there. Um, it's up to the human beings who are in that system to make those systems better. And we are one of those people. So I feel like, you know, in an organization like this is where I think that's where the people that think that way gravitate. <laughs> uh, we want to be those people. Engineers want to be those people who are making those new things that weren't there before and recognizing that nothing in the world is, has always been there or, or is there by default. It's like everything was made there by a person. And I think that's pretty inspirational to me. That's what keeps me getting up every morning. Thank you both so much. This has been such an insightful conversation. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, John. We definitely appreciate your contributions to Georgia Tech community, but also I thank you for spending time talking with me today about We Champion Innovation. Thank you. Thank you. So very Thanks for your time. Much.